2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 is today's sermon text. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and the title of this sermon series through 2 Corinthians is Spiritual Power for the Church, and our title for today's text is Our Triumph in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and I'll read through verse 17. Worship with me as we hear the word of God. Now when I came to Troas with the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's once again ask his help. God, we thank you for this wonderful privilege you've given us again today. And we plead with you that you would open our eyes to see and our heart to believe wonderful things that you reveal about yourself in your word. We ask these things for your glory and we ask them in Christ's name. Amen. Two primary reasons why a passage uh, like this grabs our attention. Just a careful reading through it, immediately we are struck by at least these two things. One is this, and it'll serve as today's outline. It's a significant turning point for Paul's apostolic ministry. We'll see that in verses 12 and 13. And the second one is this text is about the Godward, Christ-centered life. So first of all, this is a significant turning point for Paul's apostolic ministry and the Corinthian church. It's significant for Paul in this way, that when he, uh, obviously he doesn't know that it's verses 12 and 13, but after verses 12 and 13, chapter 2, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 4, is what is known as the great digression, where Paul is defending his apostolic ministry. Paul's plan was to go from Ephesus through Macedonia to Corinth. He wanted to see them. He arrives at Troas, which is around the ancient site of Troy. This wasn't a happen chance stop for him. Metaphorically speaking, a door, which is a very clear opportunity, had been opened for him to preach the gospel of Christ. One person said, this is... Speaking of this section here, this is the theological heart and 
structural turning point of the level. Paul said that he had no rest for his spirit because he was not able to see Titus and not able to receive the much anticipated update on the church at Corinth. What Paul felt and battled with in his inner man was for the spiritual progress of the Corinthian church. The same people that he, if you recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, determined to know nothing among or except but Christ and him crucified. Paul cared more for the sheep than he did for the sheep pen. Structures and order are good, but holiness is what Paul is after because this is what God is after for his people. You may recall even what God told Ananias in Acts chapter 9 shortly after Paul was converted. He told him, this is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. And we could add this burden right here. This desire to see his brother Titus. This desire to hear how are these people doing? We can add this to the list of Paul's suffering. Later on this year, Lord willing, we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But in verse 28, listen to what Paul says here. Apart from such external things. Some of those external things that he's referencing there is when he was shipwrecked, when he was beaten, the sleepless nights. That entire list of afflictions and sufferings that Paul was enduring for the sake of the name of Christ. He said, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me or the anxiety on me of concern for all the churches. God had given Paul a burden for the very people that Christ had purchased with his own blood. And he wanted to know, how are they? How are they doing? Are they moving forward in sanctification? So this was significant for Paul. It was also a turning point of significance for the church of Corinth. This letter here is a personal letter. It's already touched on the subjects of afflictions. I mean, we're, we're just a couple of chapters in, not many words into this letter, and already it's touched on the subjects of afflictions, comfort, integrity, pure conscience, pain, repentance, forgiveness. All of these themes must have biblical roots. And now he's moving to the pervasive aroma of the Christian life. Paul's spirit was troubled. He was distressed in spirit. His soul was vexed, deeply troubled that he could not find his brother Titus. Why is he so troubled? He was, again, he was hoping to hear from Titus an update on Corinth. Had the church taken heed to Paul's counsel? What did they do with the immoral man? How were they progressing in the gospel? Were they using their gifts to edify the church? How were the people doing that Paul so deeply cared for? I won't labor long here, but is there anything wrong with the burden that Paul had for the church at Corinth? Was he in any way out of line 
in his concern and hope that they would grow in love for Christ and be strengthened in the gospel. But we would easily answer that question, no, he's not out of line. He's not wrong for having this kind of concern. This is what Christ-like love requires for Christ's followers in the church. So I said I won't labor here long, but I do want to give this pastoral application in hopes that we might be able to glean how we ought to or could consider pursuing one another in similar Christ-like love as Paul has pursued this church and that we would not get rankled by a fellow brother or sister in Christ when they show their love and concern for us through asking, probing questions. This is, that, that, that's a means of God's grace and His love to you through the body that He has provided for your accountability and for your own spiritual good. So let us, let us all not get rankled when people get into our life. For Paul, he loves the people. He wants to know how they are doing. This is not just another uh, skip of the rock across the surface of the water. It's not just some people that he casually knows, but a people who are very dear to his heart. So let's not miss the anguish he has in his soul for the people that he had written previously a, quite a hard letter to. So let's now concern or, and turn our attention to Paul's response, which is this, thanks be to God. So significant for Paul, significant for the church, and the second reason why a passage like this grabs our attention is this. This text is about the Godward, Christ-centered life. This passage here is about the Godward, Christ-centered life. These verses here, I believe, are worship-inducing in these four ways. Giving thanks to God. The precious reality that God always leads us in triumph in Christ that we are now the pervasive aroma of Christ and that we do not peddle God's word but speak in Christ. Sometimes a label like God word or Christ-centered, sometimes labels like that can get overused. Somebody starts speaking in a certain way, other people pick that up as kind of their, their anthem as well and According to the behavior and lifestyle, eventually it seems like it loses a little bit of its meaning. The Godward and Christ-centered life, brothers and sisters, is not a fad. The Godward and Christ-centered life is not a life that eventually runs its course. You don't graduate from it and then move on to something else as if there's a deeper or more important meaning in life. It is the life. It's the only way to live on earth as a follower of Jesus Christ. This might sound simplistic, but in this passage, God leads us in triumph in Christ. Our life is to be the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ. We speak in all sincerity in Christ. Victory fragrance, words 
that all exude and permeate with Jesus, like the fragrance dispensers that diffuse aromas, our life dispenses the aroma of Christ in every sphere of it. And this is the difference between saying that you are Christ-centered and being Christ-centered. This is the difference between saying you are Christ-centered and living as Christ-centered. So the first of this worship-inducing ways that this passage holds out is this. Give thanks to God. We read verse 12 and 13, verse 14, but thanks be to God. Let me again draw your attention back to the context. This phrase right here reminds us of the importance of having a big view of God and a biblical understanding of affliction and suffering. Here lies real hope for the anguished Christian. It's possible to say this is hard and simultaneously be giving thanks to God. How? I think this happens in two ways. It's understanding that God always leads us in triumph in Christ. And secondly, that He diffuses from us the sweet aroma of Christ everywhere. God is making you smell like Jesus, which is life to those who are being saved and death to those who are perishing. Let verse 14 serve as an example for how to orient our life in the midst of hardships. In this example, anxiety over a people whom you love. And Paul says in the middle of this distress, but thanks be to God. What's the underpinning of this? What's the reason and the motive for such a declaration of this? And before answering that, let me just share that one advantage we have, have in our small group study referenced a couple times already today that we're going through uh, Exodus is that we, have the, uh, we, we can sit down in one single reading and read the entire Exodus account. The Israelites' history read in a single sitting or as we're doing it, we can spread it out over the course of about 12 weeks. One theme that strikes me that's relevant to this passage we're considering today, is that God is at work in ways that we cannot and may not see. You recall at the end of chapter 2, the cries of the Israelites go out to God. They, they, they find their way. They make their way to God. Moses is about to have his encounter with God, and there's no indication at the end of chapter 2, that either Israel or Moses know what is coming. We know. We, we just read the next chapter. But no indication that they know what's coming. But how encouraging that is to be able to know from our vantage point that God is always at work on behalf of His glory. Paul's anxious heart is assured that God is at work. That He is active. Therefore, he can say, but thanks be to God always. Not thanks be to God when God circumvents these circumstances and issues and turns them out in ways that I want, but thanks be to God always. Paul's preaching the gospel 
to his own soul. So an open door had not only been open to Troas, an open door had been open to his heart as well. He is actively engaging. Paul is actively engaging the ebb and flow of his emotions with the eternal word of the eternal God. Emotions like this. God is eternal. His word is eternal. So you see what he's doing here in the midst of this discouragement. Even with not receiving the update and enjoying the visit from his dear brother in Christ, he is writing to say to them the very things that entail the Christian life. God's almighty. God is always going to triumph. He is going to lead you in triumph. Followers of Christ are going to diffuse the knowledge of him. So if you are in him, there's going to be repentance. So even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't receive the update that he longs for, he's writing to them in such a way to demonstrate this is what the Christian life looks like. There's going to be forgiveness. There's going to be repentance. There's going to be a faithful receptivity to what has been written to you. This is what Christians do. They worship God. They repent from their sin. They love God and walk in close fellowship with Christ. They love each other and edify one another with the gift that the Spirit has distributed to them. Paul, I want you to get this, bases his entire apostleship, his entire ministry, he bases everything, his whole life on God. Paul knows the Word is going to do the work if they have Christ. So there is triumph in God through Christ always. Anguished Christian? Always. The second is God always leads us in triumph of Christ. What's in view here is some of the Roman history. The picture is the triumphal entry of a military hero into the city of Rome. The victorious Roman general marched in the city in a long procession preceded by civil or excuse me, preceded by city magistrates. There followed trumpeteers then the spoils that were taken from the enemy, followed by the king of the conquered country. Then officials of the victorious army and musicians dancing and playing, and at last the general himself, in whose honor the whole wonderful pageant was taking place. Everywhere in the Roman Empire, or excuse me, everyone in the Roman Empire knew about these events because they were represented on Roman arches in reliefs on coins, on statues, on medallions, in paintings, and cameos, not to mention the approximately 350 triumphs that are recorded in ancient literature. So this procession, they threw a party. Another account of these processions noted that the Romans would, par would uh, parade the spoils of the war as a way to show their prowess and to intimidate warriors of the enemy. It was a high honor for a Roman general to lead a parade and an ultimate low and admission of defeat if you were a prisoner of such parades. As it were, Paul uses their understanding of the Roman procession 
of victory and defeat to point to another triumphal entry. This man entered the city on a borrowed donkey, celebrated by those looking on, not in the way that God sent him to be celebrated, but in a different way. This man was to be a king, but not the earthly king the people envisioned. He was to be a savior, but the kind of savior, it wasn't, but not the kind of savior that they were wanting in that moment. He was to be their hope, but not in the way they ascertained they needed hope. God was parading His Son as a lamb being led to the slaughter. To God, Christ was not the spoils of defeat, but the atonement that leads to life. The Corinthian church He's saying here, take all of your Roman history of 350 plus conquests along with every other victorious battle and they will not come close to the triumph of God through Christ. God put Christ forth as the propitiation for our sins. God sent Christ as the Savior of the world. God sent Christ so that we might have eternal life through Him. God sent Christ as the promise of eternal life. Life. God paraded Christ as a public declaration of his love and a public warning of the wrath to come for all who do not pay homage to him. This same Paul told the church at Colossae in chapter 2 When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Christ is the fulfillment of these Old Testament texts. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs to it and is safe. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. The king is not saved by a mighty army, A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Church, put your hope and confidence in God. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Galatians 6.14 But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Third is the sweet aroma of Christ. Verse 14, this sweet aroma, as one said, was a customary, it was customary of the triumphal processions to be accompanied by the release of sweet odors from the burning of spices in the streets. This word manifests through us, like a diffuser or dispenser. Have you ever walked in a restroom before and you hear that little, 
as you, as you walk in there. It's, it's uh, dispensing this fragrance. What is this aroma? Well, it's the sweet aroma of Christ. Where is the aroma being dispensed? It's being dispensed in every place. There's not a place we go where you should not find the aroma of Christ. Through whom? This aroma emanates from Christians. To whom? God. And to Christians. And to the lost. First and foremost, first and foremost, we are a fragrance of Christ to God. Our life is Godward. In his first letter, Paul reminded the church that our body is a temple of the living God. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. The price is the blood of Christ. As a temple unto God, the Christian is to have the aroma, the very fragrance of Christ to God. The aroma, the sacrifice made to God foreshadows the aroma of our life in Christ as worship to God. To those perishing, we are an aroma of death to death. They are dead to Christ and therefore Christ smells like death to them. To the perishing, they think that in rejecting Christ, they are choosing life because it is their life that they are wanting to preserve, not realizing that they are storing up for themselves wrath in the day of judgment. Metaphorically speaking, they are turning their nose away from the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ. They are turning away from life in order for them to remain in death. Let this proverb, if this is you, hit you right in the heart. Proverbs 29.1 A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. For those perishing, for those death to death, One day, God will break your neck beyond remedy. Among those who are being saved, an aroma of life to life. You've tasted of Christ and you come back for more. You can say with Peter that Christ has words of eternal life. The gospel is life to you. And to you, and to read the Bible and hear the Bible preached is life giving to you. It said in John chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, another Exodus theme, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The Bible holds out two ways, at least two ways, that we're going to be known. John chapter 13, we're going to be known by our love for one another. And 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the sweet-smelling aroma and fragrance of Christ. So I do want to warn us of the subtleties. I want to warn us of the subtleties of a black backslidden heart. Someone may ask you how you're doing, and your reply to them may be, well, or how's your time in the Word? Well, it's, it's things are kind of cold, or it's just a dry season or it's just a a tough time i want to caution you from the subtleties of a backslidden 
heart. Because Jeremiah chapter 17 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I think, speak to that phrase loudly and clearly. Jeremiah 17 says the heat's going to come, the famine's going to come, but the one who's trust in the Lord, the one who trusts, whose trust is the Lord, is planted by streams of water. When the heat comes, the leaf will still be green. When the famine or drought comes, the tree will still bear fruit. I believe this runs parallel with 2 Corinthians 2 as the sweet aroma of Christ. In the heat, in the famine, your trust is in Christ. In affliction and suffering, you're still going to smell like Christ. So let me ask you this. What's emanating? What's diffusing? What's coming out of your life? The sweet aroma, fragrance, smell of Christ, one who's joyfully living in submission to God, one who's gladly submitting to the authority of God's voice, one who's walking in holiness or death. Fourth, verse 16 and 17, we do not peddle God's word, but speak in Christ. Another writer said, the Lord Christ is both the content of Paul's message and also the sphere of the opportunity. To peddle means to adulterate the word of God. Verse 17, to peddle means to pawn off a product for personal gain. The same word was used in Isaiah referring to a person who mixes water with wine in order to cheat people or a junk store owner that comes and, 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 and tries to sell you junk as though it were something that were profitable or useful. In spreading the fragrance of Christ, the preacher himself becomes fragrant. And the question is asked, who is, ad- who is, who is adequate for such things? This is a question that Paul answers one chapter later. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate. Let me back up and just say again, another reference that speaks to the Godward Christ-centered life. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy, our sufficiency is from God. We should not confuse that we are a fragrance of Christ to God among others with the exclusive authority of God to bring about the necessary change in someone's life. Let me briefly draw your attention to the update that I read earlier this morning. We cannot change the heart, but we can pray. Christ alone is the one who accomplishes this work. Paul is not adequate for this work. The church of Corinth is not sufficient for this work. You and I don't possess the authority to bring a dead heart to life. 
Only God is able to do this. Only Christ is able to accomplish this. Only the Spirit of God is able to procure and seal this work. This is the knowledge of Christ that is dispensed in our life to the saved and to those who are perishing. Therefore, we speak in Christ. Jesus is our dialect. God's glory as revealed in the person and work of Christ is our hermeneutic. And with a sincere, clean conscience before God and before others, we speak in Christ. Paul's message is Godward. He is preaching in the sight of God. So I'm thankful that week after week here at Grace Church that we gather in this assembly so that we can listen to a sermon preached in the sight of God. His word is an aroma of the sweet-smelling aroma of His Son, Jesus. To preach on the beauty and glory of Christ in the sight of God, to revel in His power, to come under His authority, to hold forth His worth and His excellency, to bask in His life. This is the life. Come what may through affliction, and His comfort is in abundance. Be riddled with anxiety and be able to give thanks to God as the victor. Samuel Rutherford had it right. To live on Christ's love is to live the king's life. We're not here to peddle God's word to you. We're not trying to make God accessible to you. We're not trying to give you a false facade of the Christian life. We're not trying to sanitize temptation. And we're not trying to put a veneer over suffering. As the fragrance of Christ... We speak in Christ to you, in the sight of God, to urge you to turn to God in repentance and faith. This life is only found in Christ's life that came as God's triumphant work. So if you're here, and you're in that category of perishing, Death to death. I want you to hear these words. How much longer? How much longer will you choose death that continues to lead to death? Death has no promise of life. What good is it for you to gain the whole world at the expense of losing your soul. What a travesty to sit week after week in the aroma of Christ. What a travesty to sit here week after week in the aroma of Christ and to turn your nose up and your heart away to death. What a tragedy to live in the midst of the fragrance of Christ, to hear that God triumphs in Christ, and then to choose to remain in darkness. Death and darkness are closing in on you. Will you not turn from death and turn? to Christ 
But thanks be to God who leads us in triumph in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do praise you for your word. We're thankful that your word is reliable. Thankful that your spirit is searching. You know our heart. You know not only the things that are known by others, but you know all the things that we like to keep hidden from others. And you know the very things that we try to hide from you. So God, I pray that your word today would be a sweet-smelling aroma. It is that. But for those who are in death, that today they would turn from death and darkness and turn to you, the living God. And for us, who are the sweet-smelling aroma of life to life, God, we pray that in every, in every aspect of our life, help us to look and to smell and to love more like Jesus. We ask these things in your strong and triumphant name.